0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: You're listening to the ERLC podcast.
0: What? Yeah Come even on. even your
2: even your groans right there your complaints yeah. uh those didn't register either. What's that worship song that starts with the words
1: I need you I need you to get better internet. You're responding to me I can't even hear you.
0: We but sp- we have good internet. For fast oh. We pay for fast internet.
1: Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester and with me on the podcast today as always are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay.
0: Hello from my infirmary, not because I'm sick, but because I have a bum back. Thank you, Dad, for your genetics.
1: <laughs> she really does. It's a it's a rough time at the at the Nicolay house. And also with us is Brent Leatherwood. Hello and welcome to September.
0: The first of the burrs.
1: The first of the burrs. I have never heard
2: that or thought about it, but good to know. Well, yes, I bring up September because this is traditionally the first month where you can get incredibly good oysters. That's the marker of September
0: for you? Yes. Touch football.
2: (laughs) Man. Well, I mean, one of... Yes, exactly. I mean, football, but football's not going to be played this year, so I'm, I'm not even not even worried. We don't right. know so that
0: Fun, for fun sure, fact: Brent.
1: even though you know, maybe we'll get to the podcast in a moment. Um, I don't like oysters, but every time we eat oysters, it's when you're at the beach and people are eating seafood, and I love crab legs. So anytime somebody talks about oysters, I associate them positively with crab legs, and so yeah, I'll, I'll roll with you, Brent. I'm here for your September oyster let's get some crab legs kind of thing.
0: Well, I don't like crab legs because I feel like it's so much work for so little benefit. The only time I've had crab, it's like the tiniest pieces of meat after I've stabbed my fingers and like blood is coming down my hands. It's not satisfying.
2: And let's be honest, you're, you're doing all that work to basically eat spider legs. I
0: mean,
2: <laughs> it's just, it's not really... So we think
0: your crab legs are inferior, Josh. Sorry.
1: Well, I can deal with your disappointment. In any case, uh, later in the show, we're going to talk to a special guest, our friend DJ Jenkins, who is a pastor out in L.A., but so that we can get into it and maybe get off this subject of September and oysters. Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week.
0: Okay, so first up, we have... uh an article about something that we have been watching closely, and it's by Ryan Tucker, who works for ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and our very own Travis Wusso, about a story that we have been following closely, and it's titled "What's Next for Religious Freedom in Nevada." And um, the deal is, what's been happening is under the governor's uh, mandate, and under the reopening orders for COVID nineteen. Many businesses have been permitted to reopen at half capacity. So practically, this means that if a casino's maximum capacity is 2,000 people, 1,000 people may gamble at its tables and slot machines, as the authors say. But the church of the same size can only welcome just 50 to a worship service. So like I said, we've been following this closely. Brent, Josh, do you all have any comments?
2: Yeah, this is absolutely uh, an issue here because you clearly have— uh, a state government that is treating churches in an inherently unequal manner from entities that are in similarly situated situations uh, so here uh, casinos the the fact that casinos can operate in the manner that they are doing but churches cannot just boggles the mind in a in a nation that has the First Amendment, uh, and it it still applies in the midst of a of a pandemic. We we have been abundantly clear about that throughout this this COVID season, and this is just a, a an egregious example here of a, a government seemingly targeting churches. And um, and and so I am thankful that we have partners out there like Alliance Defending Freedom that are litigating this to uh, a reconfirm that the First Amendment is is still with us, and b forcing governments to just make sure that a they are communicating clearly and that they are communicating consistently uh, with what the the legal constraints actually are when it comes to church and state. Throughout the entire
1: pandemic, you know, we have used as a floor, like as a minimum threshold that churches need to be, uh, and religious institutions, uh, need to be treated in a similar way to similarly situated entities. The distinction there is that that churches and houses of worship are protected by the First Amendment in ways that casinos certainly are not. And so for them to not only not be treated equally, but actually be treated worse than these, you know, similarly situated entities is, it's absurd. And uh, certainly it is good that there are uh, so many, including our partners at ADF, so many groups that exist just to advocate for religious freedom. And we're hoping to see uh, this reversed,
2: in Nevada, because this is just—it's an unconscionable practice. And so, I, I would just uh, want to just reiterate um, on top of, of what you said there, Josh. Th- this is a this is a legitimate example of where there is a church-state collision, and and the the state has has really overstepped its bounds here. And we have said, you know, throughout this moment. Uh, Church leaders, pastors, view yourselves as partners with civic leaders in combating the the spread of this virus. A- act wisely, uh, act consistently with with what your your local guidelines, particularly local public health experts, local officials, uh, so that that you can act in a way that is consistent with what is the best practice in your particular area. I mean, I think as we have seen the. The spread of this virus is is, is uh, much more likely in dense urban settings than in far less dense rural settings, and and so a number of these limitations and, and uh, guidelines presented by governments have reflected that. And so, but you can only be consistent if you are are communicating. And at the same time, we have stressed to civic leaders open up lines of dialogue with churches in your community. So that way they are given uh, the the latest guidelines based on what we now know about uh, the virus in our area or just what science is telling us uh, about it. I mean, that that communication aspect is so important. And honestly, that, that should be happening even when we're not in the midst uh, of a pandemic, just so that both sides of church and state can understand what is happening, what is Going on in each sphere, and look, we've had multiple conversations with local officials where I, I think, from us on the church side of things, like we've just had to explain like very basic things, like what is communion, uh, what do we mean by a pastor and an audiovisual guy being essential for for going in and recording uh, a sermon. Uh, these are are very honestly small hurdles that can be overcome if we are uh, approaching these things in a spirit of cooperation unfortunately in this instance in nevada it doesn't seem like that is is what is occurring from the state side of things
0: thank you all for weighing in i know i for one am thankful for resources like this That help explain these important things like our First Amendment freedoms and religious liberty. I'm thankful for an organization that fights for the religious liberty of all people. So again, if you're wondering what's going on in Nevada, I would encourage you to check out this article. Next up... We have an article by Josh Wester. It seems like we are featuring his articles every week, but he has just been eating his Wheaties and his brain power is just getting stronger. And he's just been writing good articles. So what can I say? And this you is can a really just take important credit for way. this one, Lindsay, because <laughs> yeah.
1: you, you're the one that suggested this topic.
0: It was my idea, but I couldn't have written it. So this article is a really important article because it has to do with the vulnerability of these babies and these infants and the egregious acts. That are happening toward them, murder actually in the practice of abortion. So this article is titled, What Does Cognitive Dissonance Have to Do with Abortion and Social Justice? It may seem like a big title, but it's really important. And Josh does a really good job explaining what he's talking about. So Josh, do you want to weigh in on this?
1: Sure. I mean, it's one of the one of the most uh, mystifying things to me is how people who are, you know, advocates for social justice, which that's a word that gets, you know, tossed around all the time. And a lot of times it's, it's a pretty, it's, it's pretty charged language, but at, at the root, uh, social justice is about seeing people thrive and flourish. People who consider themselves to be social justice advocates are, uh, trying to help people who find themselves in any manner of difficult situations, uh, whether that be, you know, advocating on behalf of immigrants, uh, advocating for criminal justice reform, advocating for those who find themselves in the midst of addiction, any number of of things or human crises that people might be experiencing. People who advocate for social justice do that because, theoretically, it's because they have a high view of the human person. But when it comes to abortion, what we're talking about is probably the most egregious practice of violence against the most vulnerable population in our society. And so often, Social justice advocates, those who in all of these other cases are consistently advocating and trying to prop up human dignity and work to see uh, change or policies that support those things and allow people to thrive and flourish and certainly to live tend to turn a blind eye toward abortion. And so that was the real impetus behind this article was just the idea to talk about the cognitive dissonance that happens there when we talk about social justice and yet we neglect the unborn, but also take a chance to to look at the other side of that to see how even cognitive dissonance affects those who do, uh, who are pro-life and do consider themselves to be advocates on behalf of the unborn. And so I try to do all of that in this article.
0: And it's really helpful. And it's a call to make sure that our beliefs uh, line up and our practices line up. And I love this uh, final paragraph. It says, Jesus was perfectly consistent in his beliefs, regardless of the cost, and he never decided which people mattered. He affirmed the value of every person, especially those most frequently overlooked. Following his example will transcend any party platform or ideology. It may keep you out of step with those on your side, but it will never lead toward error or contradiction. Cognitive dissonance affects all of us. Fixing your eyes on Jesus is the path to integrity. So, thanks for writing that article, Josh, and calling us to integrity in following Christ. And then finally, on our site this week and on social media, we had an emphasis on um, caring well. In our churches for our congregants to ensure as much as we can that they're safe from sexual abuse and caring well for victims of sexual abuse. So we featured a couple of articles that had something to do with that. And then also we released our free Caring Well hiring guide. But one of these articles by Faye Scott is titled, Protocols to Help Protect Against Sexual Abuse While Meeting Virtually. Don't don't let your guard down during COVID-19. And in it, Face Scott gives some suggestions and some protocols, some guidelines to help reduce risks in online meetings uh, because we can tend, as she says in the title of the article, to let our guard down. So some of the examples are screening, um, sexual abuse awareness training, uh, rule a rule of three as far as how many people need to be meeting virtually if there is a youth involved, um, having a social media policy communication with parents. So again, a lot of these things are things that you would implement if you were in person, but you might not think that they are important while things are so out of step right now, out of the normal flow. But we have to be vigilant because predators will take these opportunities to find those in our midst who are vulnerable and prey on them.
2: Yeah. Our Caring Well initiative is our project to help Equip churches and equip church leaders uh, to combat the the crisis of of sexual abuse in in the church. And we are so encouraged by the number of of churches that uh, joined and took the Caring Well Challenge initially. As a matter of fact, our as I think Josh said at the top of the show, our our guest this week, DJ Jenkins, he pastors a church in Los Angeles uh, that that has begun the Caring Well Challenge. And so we're thankful for those churches who have done it, but. This article is a great reminder that even in the midst of a pandemic, we cannot let our guard down. We cannot uh, continue to pursue ways to combat abuse because the enemy will will use this time uh, to somehow infiltrate our church and um, take advantage of those who are in vulnerable situations. And so uh, I'm really thankful that we... Uh, we surfaced this piece this
0: week. Absolutely. And like I said, we have plenty of other really helpful resources on our site. These are just three of them. So Josh and Brent, that's your look at what's happening at erlc.com.
1: Hey, Lindsay, thanks so much for that. And Brent, that takes us to the culture section
2: for the week. So tell us what's going on. All right. Well, we begin this week with the rock. Not uh thank you, you. Know, not Alcatraz. I was trying to say that really in my Sean Connery. Best uh, you know, Scotland Forever. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just not it's not really coming across the way that it does when he does, when he said it in the movie. But so no, we're not we're not starting at Alcatraz. We're actually starting with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's right, the superstar shared some unfortunate news on his home front. He and his family have tested positive for the coronavirus. Johnson announced uh, their diagnosis in an 11-plus-minute video on Instagram this past Wednesday. He said he was shocked after hearing of their positive test results, calling the ordeal, quote, one of the most challenging and difficult things we've ever had to endure. In an Associated Press report about this, the actor said he, along with his wife, and two young daughters contracted the virus, uh, but have now recovered. And he said his daughters bounced back after having a couple of sore throats, but that he and his wife had some really rough days. So uh, this is a reminder that uh, even though I think a lot of us are ready to be done with COVID-19, it uh, it is not done with us. It is still raging out there.
1: Yeah, I've got to jump in on this one only to say that, you know, The Rock is well, he's an American icon. He's my hero. And when I found out that his family was going through this, I was particularly sad. Uh, it is a reminder for a lot of people to take it seriously, to remember that, you know, no one is immune from this and not even somebody who, you know, is in maybe the the best shape ever uh, is still, a, you know, susceptible to come down with the coronavirus and be, you know, experience some pretty dramatic effects from it. And so, it's kind of a warning for everyone that this is still a thing that we are contending with, even though we're all fatigued by it and ready to move on with our lives. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and The Rock has taken a pretty hard line approach. People that come visit him from here on out have to take a COVID test before, because apparently he caught it from close family friends.
2: Well, uh, it is. It is again, it is a reminder uh, that this disease is is still out there. And even though I'm thankful that we seemingly have come down from the the highs that we saw nationally in in June and July, there are still hot spots uh, around the country. Uh, just this week, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci was um, he was warning that there are multiple states that uh, could potentially be on the on the verge of a, an, an increased outbreak. We're still seeing roughly uh, about a thousand of our fellow Americans die each week uh, because of this, and so it's uh, it's just a reminder that uh, we need to. Uh, take this seriously as much as we can. All right, so staying in the U.S., uh, I was, you know, as somebody who's worked as, in politics and kind of considers myself to be a fiscal conservative, oh, this this was this was gut-wrenching. U.S. debt is now scheduled or anticipated to reach 100% of GDP in 2021. According to a report on Axios, the federal budget deficit will reach $3.3 trillion in the fiscal year that ends at the end of this month, more than triple the 2019 shortfall according to the Congressional Budget Office, a nonpartisan entity. And so that's the federal budget deficit. The national debt is also expected to soar and reach 107% of GDP in 2023. That will be the highest in the nation's history. So honestly, if you're just looking for annual spending that goes into debt spending, th- this is the highest that we've had since 1946, but our overall debt, the one that keeps accumulating year after year, is anticipated to reach the highest level ever. It is uh it is not good. This is this is not how you would want to balance your personal bank account, folks. Brent, this is normally the time where Lindsay would come in
1: and offer us some kind of comic relief, but I'll just say that you know, in the midst of a pandemic, it feels difficult to uh, to be too concerned about you know federal spending and the just because of the sheer level uh, or historic nature of this crisis that we're facing. But at the same time, when you look at those numbers, that is just terrifying uh, to see the. The national debt soar like that to know that we are uh, spending money uh, to create a, an annual deficit that is just out of control, and it makes you wonder, is there a time when this begins to reverse? Because as you mentioned, it's not, you know, none of us could do this with our personal finances. Looking at the, you know, the life of a country is obviously uh, an order of magnitude different, uh, distinct from that, but it, it just makes you
2: wonder, is, is there a time when this is going to be reversed?
0: Mm, mm.
2: It it uh, it reminds me that we need to be in constant prayer uh, for our national leaders because uh, you're right. Uh, this unprecedented spending has been caused by an unprecedented, uh, at least in our lifetimes, uh, public health emergency. And um, it's gonna require a lot of wisdom because there probably are going to be difficult decisions down the road uh, for our public policy leaders. So as I mentioned, COVID-19 has been the main driver of much of that spending. On that note, this week, the the Center for Disease Control and Prevention did something that that raised some eyebrows. They listed in their official documents online for 6% of deaths, COVID-19 was the only cause mentioned. So 6% of the deaths in this coronavirus season, COVID-19 was the only cause mentioned. So obviously online, this caused a lot of speculation, some of it maybe not the most helpful. Uh, Because essentially what they're saying is out of the so far 180,000 deaths that have been recorded in America, only a relatively small amount were related to coronavirus, or at least that's what some people tried to argue. I came across what I thought was a really helpful explainer from the dispatch, uh, and it said that the CDC page mentions that the death counts are based on death certificate data and understanding how death certificates are filled out and the differences between terms like immediate cause and underlying cause helps to paint a much clearer picture here. So in other words, most likely these deaths were all related in some way to coronavirus and it brought about additional causes that unfortunately led to a person passing away. And that's that's what I thought was most helpful about this piece because. Again, we just seem to be in the season where there's a lot of misinformation that is spread out there, and I, I thought this was a, a helpful piece uh, for our audience.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm kind of doing a virtual eye roll at this because it is misinformation and it's kind of along the lines of the conspiracy theories a little bit that we've talked about. I didn't read that particular article, but I did see some helpful posts from doctors that we trust. One of them His name is Scott James, and he's actually written for us, and he just commented on some of the explanation and how this is just grossly misunderstanding the statistics. And then I saw another lady post her husband had died of cancer, and she said, said, but do you know what is not listed on his death certificate as cause of death? Cancer because the cancer had led to something else involving his lungs, and that ultimately was the cause of his death. So, again, it's like you wrapped it up and said, Brent, that COVID 19 was probably related to these additional causes that ultimately led to a person dying. So, we have to be quick to check our information and quick to listen and read and not to type and share.
2: That's a good word, Lindsay. And so, honestly, there's There's not really an appetizing way to segue to this next note, but I know it's going to make you happy, Josh. In Alabama, effective at 5 p.m. on Monday, all buffets, salad bars, and self-serve drink stations are okay to reopen as long as there is an employee present whose duties include ensuring that six feet of separation exists among customers, according to the news website al.com. So basically, if you've been hankering for some Western Sizzlin' Golden Corral, Ponderosa, or Ryan's, you're good to go in Alabama.
0: Oh, man. One of my favorite pastimes as a kid was going to a good buffet. And by good, I don't necessarily mean quality. Ryan's, I'd go load up on their yeast rolls, and then I'd hit up the dessert bar, get their soft serve and stick Twizzlers in there, and uh, loved me some Golden Corral Also loved me a good cafe, like a Morrison's. Have y'all ever heard of that? My papa would take me and he'd get liver and onions.
2: Isn't that a cafeteria, not a cafe? and onions. Yeah,
0: cafeteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Cafeteria, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, back home in Chattanooga, we had the Piccadilly.
0: Yes. Piccadilly, yeah. Piccadilly.
1: Well, I um, got my start in my working life in a steakhouse buffet that was similar to Ryan's and uh, worked there as a busboy. When I was 15 and then returned for a job as a waiter when I was in college. And so, yeah, I'm very familiar. I don't miss doing that job or those jobs really at all, but yeah, you know, I'm probably going to wait a while before I hit up a buffet, but at some point
2: I'll be there. That's right. And if you get that hankering anytime soon, just, just going down. down to Alabama, <laughs> just cross the state line <laughs> and, uh, and you can go to Huntsville and just, uh, go to the dessert bar. That's probably where I would go to Lindsay.
0: Uh, I think my uh, buffet days are done after this pandemic. (laughs) Also, my standards have been raised just a little bit.
1: (laughs) Well, I can't let us move on without acknowledging Megan is uh, throwing the, you know, the brains behind the podcast is throwing shade at Brent right now because uh, her public service announcement is that all cafes are cafeterias because cafe is literally short for cafeteria.
2: Really? So it's the Starbucks cafeteria in long form. It could be delicatessen. Not, I don't know. That, that wasn't what I was expecting, but okay. All right. See, that that's what we do here at this show. We do, we do in-person fact checks, like in the moment. That's just, that's great. Thank you, Megan Smith. Again, as Josh said, the brains behind the operation here. All right. So moving right along to the political front, Axios reports that the Commission on Presidential Debates, it's usually not a commission that we talk about except every four years, but it is a real thing. On Wednesday, it announced the moderators for the upcoming general election debates. They include Fox News' Chris Wallace, USA Today's Susan Page, C-SPAN's Steve Scully, and NBC News' Kristen Welker. That's just more evidence that we are now heading into the stretch run of the fall campaign for president. We got another note this week because the Biden-Harris campaign announced an eye-opening sum for fundraising in the month of August, $365 million raised in one month, and the majority of that coming from small online donors. That shatters the previous one-month total from all other campaigns. All right, so on the home front, do y'all remember Tide Pods? That was a thing for Megan's generation. To consume?
0: Well, they still have Tide Pods, but they have like safety seals on them now.
2: Okay. Well, we want to make sure that Megan is safe. So, But apparently, there's actually a new challenge. Uh, According to Fox News, the Benadryl challenge is a dangerous social media fad on the app TikTok that led to the death of a 15-year-old Oklahoma teen last week and the hospitalization of at least three teenagers in Texas in May. The deadly challenge coaxes participants to take several doses of the -the over-the-counter antihistamine to the point that the person trips out or hallucinates. This is not something that I would recommend our our listeners participate in, but obviously something that we want parents uh, who might be listeners of the podcast to be aware of.
1: Yeah. I can't imagine that any person who's ever taken Benadryl before would voluntarily take multiple doses of Benadryl at a time. Uh, It is already a really potent, you know, drug. And so the idea that you would take it, uh, take multiple doses is just insane. But, you know, teenagers are, they do things that aren't smart.
0: Well, and, you know, it goes back to our article uh, earlier, and, and we've had another article similar to it in the past, I believe, that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It doesn't necessarily have to do with abuse, but it has to do with parents continuing to be vigilant over their children's use of the internet, because even teenagers, they may seem older, of course, than a seven-year-old or whatever, but they still make really dumb decisions, and they still need guidance, and they need help, and they need to know that you probably shouldn't follow friend's or imitate friends who are partaking of the Benadryl challenge.
2: That's right. All right, and then finally, a a sad cultural note. So this actually occurred last week, uh, right after we recorded uh, is when this news came out. But the actor Chadwick Boseman passed away after quietly battling cancer. Um, According to the Associated Press uh, report about his passing, We remember him for slipping on the cleats of Jackie Robinson and then the Godfather of Soul's dancing shoes, portraying both Black American icons with a searing intensity that commanded respect. And then when the former playwright suited up as Black Panther, he brought cool intellectual gravitas to the Marvel superhero, whose Wakanda Forever salute reverberated worldwide. What we didn't realize is that as he was Uh, Filming the Black Panther, Bozeman was privately undergoing countless surgeries and chemotherapy. He never spoke publicly about this challenge, and he succumbed to it last week uh, at the age of 43. What a great talent uh, that that we lost in, in Hollywood and honestly in culture. All right, well, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. If you're like most pastors, church leaders,
1: or ministry staff members, you've probably faced difficult questions about hiring. Protecting your church or ministry from sexual abuse is an important concern, and one of the best ways to do that is through effective hiring and screening practices. But most people aren't sure where to begin or what questions they should ask during the hiring process. That's where the Caring Well Hiring Guide comes in. This brand new resource provides a starting point for church leaders who are now working to implement effective hiring and screening practices to help prevent future abuse. You can download your free copy now at caringwell.com hiring. All right, so now we're about to talk to our friend, uh, DJ Jenkins. DJ is the pastor of Anthology Church in Los Angeles. He is an ERLC Leadership Council member and someone who is leading a church right now through something we mentioned earlier in the show, the Caring Well Challenge. So we're excited to talk to DJ today. So DJ, thanks so much for joining us today. We are really grateful to spend a little bit of time talking to you as we are getting started. Would you um, tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you're serving in ministry right now? And while you're at it, would you tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this unique season of life and ministry?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It'd be my pleasure. Well, I am Southern California, born and raised currently in Studio City, California, which is a neighborhood of Los Angeles, just the other side of the Hollywood sign. Went to church off and on, uh, raised by a single mother, but didn't really understand the gospel ever at all. By the time high school rolled around, wanted to uh, play and or watch football on Sunday rather than going to church, and it was uh, going to school at one of the California State Schools, Cal Poly Pomona, uh, where I met several staff from uh, what at the time was called Campus Crusade for Christ, and now of course it's called Crew and just wanted to get involved in something that would give me friends. And uh, I remember sitting in some of the first Bible studies and hearing the gospel clearly articulated for what I'm sure is not the first time, because I know I heard it beforehand. I know my family has a a history and, and been to some churches, but I just remember it was like fireworks were going off in my mind and I remember kind of in my mind going, why has no one told me this before? <laughs> I can be fully forgiven of my sin. And it was the most basic things, like fully forgiven of my sin, past, present, future, through Jesus, not through my efforts. And it was like, you know, everything was like a Copernican revolution. And uh, my life was changed. I was back in 1999 and served on staff with a uh, crew for Nine years, both there at Cal Poly Pomona and then at the University of Arizona. We lived in Tucson. And then uh, God really expanded our hearts beyond uh, college students at that time. And uh, lots of process going in there. Lots of things from folks like Ed Stetzer and Tim Keller and perspective on church planting. And we had done several trips out in Los Angeles with crew to Santa Monica. And God just really grew our heart for Los Angeles. and. Uh, There's a lot of people that don't like Los Angeles and we love it and uh, felt maybe that's part of God calling us here. And so met some of the uh, local uh, what is now Send Network people, loved the heart and the vision of a couple of those people. Robbie and Kim Pitt are their names. They're now in Colorado uh, serving and planting uh, out there. But uh, it was that process. And so way back in 2012, we planted our church or moved anyway, um, to Studio City, which is a very influential called Studio City because there's lots of studios nearby. <laughs> so lots of people making the TV and movies and the narratives that are really shaping not just this city, of course, but really the country and in a lot of ways the world. And so it is people say, why did you go there? And I say, because we're crazy. Uh, it is uh, hard soil. <laughs> it is not a uh, is not easy, but it's people filled with people like anywhere else. And we love it here. We love the people here. And we've been doing ministry. And in our small church um, since back in 2012, really started the church going about 2014. And one thing that God has been teaching me, we're going over the uh, Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And I think one of the things that struck me as I was preparing my sermon was how. Big picture the first half of the Lord's Prayer is. You know, you have kind of two sections. You have the Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done. Then you have the Give Us Our Daily Bread. It's amazingly both personal on the back end, but then the front end is Your Will Be Done, Your Kingdom Come. It is huge and big. And I think it, when I think about uh, the things that I was reflecting on, were this is a prayer that's supposed to be a model, it's supposed to be a template. For us and how to pray regularly. But this is a prayer that has big picture effects on the world. This This affects countries. This is not just about my neighborhood or my family or uh, my country. This is about the kingdom of God. So it's it can't just be about what's going on in my life or how I feel, but this is about justice. This is about uh, the big picture of human trafficking. This is about how we treat the unborn. This is about how we treat the most vulnerable among us. God's kingdom coming includes other things like church planting and sharing the gospel and people coming to know Christ around the world. And I was just struck by some new eyes and fresh on what it meant to think through all the things that are going on now in our world and thinking, boy, the Lord's Prayer really, on the front end, really does address so many of those things that we're wrestling with right now. So yeah, that's one thing God's teaching me in this season.
0: So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. Can you tell us what things in culture you and the folks around you are paying attention to right now?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think right now the immediate felt needs in relation to culture, especially in California and Los Angeles, feel there's so much about the church and religious liberty, and um, you know, there's a lot of prominent examples around here. And... Uh, the pandemic as a whole has highlighted this, I think across our whole culture, the particular division that we have across the aisles, the heightened sense, at least it feels this way. It feels like in my lifetime, I'm only 39, but it feels more divided than it's been. Most of the people that we work with, you know, in Los Angeles, we probably have a lot of people, a lot of people that come in from other places who are here because of the TV movie industry and come from Christian backgrounds and have walked with Jesus for a long time and grown up in places like the South and places like the Midwest. And then you got a lot of people who are from here and probably come from a more progressive background in their family history and things and, and maybe identify more with the progressive causes here in Los Angeles. So we actually get quite, even though our church is, um, is small, we get quite a, a diverse mix of perspectives. And then we have age groups across the board. Uh, from older to younger. And some of the same patterns we see other places where younger people tend to be more socially progressive or conscious or whatever it might be, seem to happen here too. So we see some of the, yeah, I, I see our church as a whole kind of still united around the main mission that God has called us to in the church. But boy, everyone is feeling in their families, in their conversations they have. Um, with coworkers, in anything that happens, big picture, just the division and the vitriol that is felt across the board. And so I think seeing that with the pandemic and the heightened things that are going on with that, that coming into the church and when it's allowed to meet and what the government says about how that relates to the pandemic. And I have had a lot of conversations with local pastors around here and then some greater Big picture things going on outside of my own conversations, but there people are pastors, especially are just getting it from both sides from their people. You're doing this, you're capitulating, you should be standing up, you're not paying enough attention to the virus, you're not keeping it safe. It is brutal. And so I I think seeing the the I, I'm broken by the division that's in the greater culture in Studio City and Los Angeles. So trying to navigate those things in the culture and as followers of Jesus. And I, I, this whole pandemic has really brought up, you know, what, what, boy, religious liberty concerns. What does it look like? What has God called us to in relation to obeying Romans 13? What does it look like to submit to the governing authorities, whether they're good or evil? What does it look like to stand up for I don't even know if the scriptures call us to stand up for our rights, but we are to seek to obey Christ, which includes gathering together regularly in person. And I found myself, and I know a lot of people including the ERLC have put out different resources and things, but boy, I find myself going, I need to think through a lot of these things more uh, for our people and uh, and so on. So I see all that. I see that going on in the culture coming into the church and it, um, I wish I had uh, wonderful answers that could unite everyone together, but that that those are things that uh, yeah that
2: I see going on that concern me. Well, DJ, one of the things I am continually thankful for in this season is how you and and pastors just like you, even in the midst of this challenging season, just continue to faithfully proclaim the gospel uh, for. Uh, the people that you are are privileged to lead right now, and um, just thank you for that consistency in a in a world full of inconsistency and and things that are just upside down. Thank you for just constantly calling us back to the truth so let's uh, let's switch gears uh, slightly for this third question one of the things that we are spotlighting at the ERLC this week is our caring well initiative and so I'm curious can you tell our audience briefly what what made you and your church decide to uh, take the caring well challenge and, and what's it been what's it looked like as y'all have uh, kind of started going through that process?
3: probably like a lot of the things that, that initiated the need for the challenge to take place was seeing the report out of, I think it was the Houston Chronicle, if I'm not mistaken, but starting to see the stories of abuse from churches. And and I, I remember reading some of the stories and being almost frozen in... Sadness and grief and lamenting and then at times anger and how could this happen and oh my gosh could this ha- has this happened in churches that I've been a part of or are are there safeguards we don't have as a church and how would I know if something like this happened in our small church and is our team prepared and all those questions and and goodness how does how's this happen and I think a lot if if anyone's familiar with the initial reporting from those stories I think everyone probably had similar reactions to those things. And then we, um, as the ERLC, and I think uh, JD Greer and others from the um, SBC started to highlight the Caring Well initiative. We said, gosh, well, little old us, we got to at least be part of this somehow. And uh, it will only produce good things um, in the long run. And uh, I had the opportunity to go out to the uh, Caring Well conference. And that was extremely hard uh, extremely good uh, there were sessions after hearing some of the stories of abuse that some of the speakers shared that I literally just sat in the chair there were times of like corporate worship during some of the sessions and I was like I can't do this right now <laughs> I just have to sit here and and it, it felt like the most uh, sackcloth and ashes type moment in my own life where I just go Lord I just I'm just I'm I just feel like I need to weep and lament. And so that led us to keep taking the steps. We did our own message as a church, addressing it and uh, tried to put some of the resources in front of our people. Our team started going through the uh, content that was provided. And so it, it was it, it was those things that I think w- we had some good safeguards. We had some background check stuff and, and uh, this helped us to continue to speak through it to make sure we had policies in place that were protecting the most vulnerable, especially children in our church, and to keep moving forward through that. So that's what led us to take part in it.
0: Well, we're so thankful for um, for y'all taking up that challenge and, and seeking to make your way through it and seeking to make your church a safe place for victims of abuse and to protect your congregants from abuse. In the midst of what has been uh, a hot spot during the coronavirus out there on the west coast in Cali. Uh, how is your church navigating the complexities of pandemic life, and they're probably never-ending complexities.
3: Yes. Oh my goodness. I, I think uh, you know. I, I try to be pretty up on the scientific data and the news and things, and and so I remember telling having conversations with our team. Uh, before the initial, um, you know, I think it was Rudy Gobert from the NBA tested positive and a game was canceled. And then Tom Hanks came out and said he tested positive and it felt like everything kind of changed whatever day that was, but uh, things changed so quickly. And all of a sudden we didn't even have an option. So again, we meet in a local city recreation center. So it's part of the city of Los Angeles. So we made the decision not to meet at that time already in March. And then, like two days after we made the decision, it was not our option and we had to do it. And so, so, some of the changes were thrust upon us. And then we were trying to plan through everything. And we, like, gosh, like so many other people, had to go, okay, do we do Zoom? Where do we do it? We're a small church. So, you know, one of the things I think is, is uh, most concerning, especially as things open up now. If you're a church that has your own property, you can meet anywhere on your property outside. Um, churches that are small like us, or church plants, it's really tough on the small churches trying to figure out what do we do. We can't even get a permit to meet in a park if we wanted to, so we have to, you know, basically show up there. We're a small enough church that we don't we don't cause enough commotion for neighbors to complain. Uh, but that's one of the hard things is that it is is now as we're coming out on the back end after doing tons of online services um certainly in california certainly in los angeles things change so much and so every time back in may we bought all these we bought several um thermometer uh thermometers yeah like the uh touchless ones because we're like hey we're gonna be open soon we got to get these going and get everything and yeah, we're not opening soon. <laughs> and so uh, things, there's so many times our team has met, our leadership team, and uh, we've just had to uh, change things up every single time. So that's that's some, that's one of the toughest things. We've just had to continually, every time we make plans, something changes. Things are looking better now in LA. Things are starting to open up more. Everyone's talking about fear of a, another fall outbreak. And so, you know, we don't know. We're just trusting God like so many others and trying to walk with him and trying to still do our best to continue to
2: keep up with our people and try to meet needs where we can. DJ, I appreciate the humility that you were expressing in that, that final part of your answer, because there's just so much that is unknown uh, about this virus, about what potentially may or, or may not uh, be yet to come and so really the only way that we can approach this is in humility but i'm i'm thankful that we've got uh, a god that is bigger than the virus and a church that's uh, ultimately going to outlast it so all right so let's let's turn our minds to Fun times, or at least yes. pre-pandemic and hopefully <laughs> post-pandemic. So, you know, you're out there on the the West Coast. Uh, I wouldn't classify you as a as a typical California surfer dude, but I'm sure that you ministered <laughs> no. to a few uh-huh. of them. So, in normal times, what are some of the LA things that you really enjoy, and that maybe you can uh, help our audience anticipate getting to enjoy once things clear up?
3: Well, the great thing about LA is there's tons of things you can do. People think, you know, do you go to the beach all the time? They're like, no, the beach is hard to get to, and its parking's crazy. I hate sand, <laughs> so that's uh, yeah, I'm not a typical uh, surfer dude. But LA, the things our family really enjoys doing, we love food. LA has a great food scene. There is this taco truck down on the sadly on the other side of town, and by the other side of town, LA means you know, depending on the time of day, it's going to take me an hour at least to get there. Um, But when we pass it or when we happen to be nearby, they have these incredible seafood tacos that are fried and dipped. uh, And uh, they've got this um, ceviche that is cold, but spicy. And it's just Oh, my Lord, have mercy. It's, it is so good. So we love we love finding uh, great food places. There's tons of them here. We're also a Disney family. So, um, you know, Disneyland is technically, and literally and technically, in Orange County. So it's not part of L.A. County, but it's just south of here. And on a good day, when there's no traffic, which means uh, middle of the night, you can get there in about 25 minutes from where we are. Most of the time, we, we have annual passes that we ask for, for gifts and things because they're, they're quite pricey, but we, uh, wrap in the kids' birthdays and stuff and make it all happen eventually. And so we'll, we love on a long weekend or, um, you know, on a Friday afternoon, we'll take the long trip in traffic, get down there about five or five thirty, go for three, four hours or something, walk around Disneyland, go on a few rides with the kids, get a fun ice cream or something, and then come home late at night um, on a Friday night. And that's one of our favorite things to do. We're looking forward to whenever there's talk, there's talk. Newsom said there's hope. Governor Newsom said we're in talks and it's going in the right direction for theme parks. And so our family is, uh, crossing our fingers that it won't be too far behind, but that's, that's one of our favorite things to do. We're, we love, uh, love getting down there and enjoying our time together. So as a family.
1: Man, DJ, well, it's been cool to uh, catch up with you and for our audience to get to hear a little bit about what it's like to live and do ministry in L.A. I'm sure, though, that that last answer is going to be the thing that actually creates the real envy, Uh, both because, one, (laughs) we talk about food on this podcast all the time. And so now I just want to get to that food truck that you mentioned. And then also, you know, just having just having theme parks in your backyard that you can just go uh, and take the family to casually. That sounds
3: really wonderful. It's not the worst thing in the world. I can tell you that,
1: man. Well, DJ, we're grateful to God, uh, for all that he is doing through you, uh, and Anthology Church out there in Los Angeles. And we are, you know, grateful that you took the time to talk to us today. So, uh, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate you all. Thanks for the work you guys do for us.
1: So now it's time for the lunchroom, but before we get to that, I just want to say, uh, again, Following with Brent's real-time fact-checking, we found out uh, after we finished talking to DJ that today is his 15th wedding anniversary. And so we want to say happy anniversary to DJ and his wife. And man, I mean, that's that's a milestone. And so I hope you guys are doing something special to celebrate. Moving to the lunchroom. Uh, guys, what a fun week. I'll go ahead and go first uh, and just throw out two things. Uh, One of them is truly hilarious. Before I get to that one, I'll just mention this. So uh, on the internet, there was some person in the world who posted this as a tweet. It says, Zoom Preschool, and I have a preschooler, so it stuck out to me. Zoom Preschool is both hilarious and depressing. My four-year-old keeps unmuting himself and yelling in all caps, I do not know your name. Is this meeting over yet? Which is, you know, just speaks to my heart, both because I can understand the, the absolute pain and difficulty of trying to get a preschooler to do a Zoom meeting at all, but also because, man, I just, it resonates with me because I just feel that so much about Zoom meetings. I, I want to unmute my microphone <laughs> and say, is this meeting over yet? So anyway, that was quite funny. But if you guys didn't see it, the funniest thing that happened this week by far uh, came from a city council meeting where a guy stood up before a city council to make what seemed to be, at first, a very serious address to talk about boneless chicken wings. And if you haven't seen this video, it's linked in the show notes. You need to check it out because with, I mean, just true gusto, this guy just absolutely goes after this point of talking about chicken wings as being false advertising. He said, there's nothing in a boneless boneless wings. There's nothing in a boneless wing that actually comes from the wing of a chicken. And then he says, and but the, the best part, and our colleague uh, Travis Luso pointed this out to me, the very best part is he says, we are teaching our children to be afraid of bones. Meat grows on bones. And as a, an astute observation turned into just serious comedy, uh, if you haven't watched this video, you need to go check it out.
0: That is ridiculous. And it reminds me of that very same colleague, Travis, when he live tweeted his uh, condo association board meeting. That was oh, happening, gosh. where they were kicking out a member of the board. I wish
1: we could share that with the whole audience. Uh, that's probably a little too personal to to put out there. But Travis did for our entire staff basically live tweet a meeting of his HOA or whatever, and it was just unbelievable the drama that was wrapped up in that. So hopefully, you guys that hopefully that doesn't resonate with you. But but Travis had a truly hilarious and awful experience sitting on this board uh, and dealing with this. Yeah, now those you know <laughs> now the, defunct
2: those, chairman. Those uh those open mic opportunities with local governments, particularly city councils and school boards, those attract some really interesting commentary sometimes. And uh, I'm thankful that this one was caught on video and shared with all of us.
1: Another line from that video, he said, he said, um, this is from the you know boneless wing video, he said, I don't go and order boneless tacos. Like his, his whole thing, it was just so fantastic. And if you, haven't, if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it.
0: Okay, so mine, uh, for my Lunchroom segment, it's something I saw this morning, and it is purely entertainment. So buckle up for November 2020, folks. Because of an election? Nope. Because there is a new James Bond movie coming out. No time to die. No time to die is what it's called. Daniel Craig, who is 52 years old, by the way. As this article says, it's his swan song as 007. This is the 25th movie in the spy franchise. Isn't that crazy? 25. Do y'all have a I mean, if already, you even like the Bond films, we've do you already have a mentioned favorite Bond?
1: Scotland Forever, you know. Uh, definitely it, Daniel it's Craig. It's hard to beat Sean Connery as Bond. But but Daniel Craig is definitely my second favorite Bond.
0: Sean Connery. Yeah.
1: Although it, I will say it's it's kind of sad. Although I'm really looking forward to Daniel Craig in this movie. It's going to be epic. But there is a little bit of like personal sadness for me because before he opted to do this movie when it looked like he was done with his iteration of the Bond franchise, my friend who is a stunt a stunt double, uh the guy that he doubles for frequently was up for mm-hmm. the Bond role and he could have been the actual stunt guy for 007 and that would have been, you know, an achievement for life.
0: That would have been pretty awesome. Well, my husband likes the Bond movies. Daniel Craig is his favorite as well. So we are excited. I don't know if we'll be going back to theaters by then, but uh, we are pumped uh, just to escape reality and watch a little Bond in action.
2: Yeah, my three favorite Bonds, I think, are Daniel Craig, Sean Connery, and Pierce Brosnan. Goldeneye. I think those are my top three. Josh, are you looking forward? Or are you looking forward to this more or Maverick?
1: That's that's tough, man. Like, here's the thing. The what we know for sure is that the Daniel Craig Bond movies have been consistently great. We have no idea if Maverick is going to live up to the hype, but I did watch a trailer the other day. And if the movie is, you know, 20% of what this movie trailer portrayed it as, it's gonna be an epic movie.
0: Oh, comes out December so 23rd, just, by the way. Okay, I just looked this up. This is this is Tom Cruise Top Gun. Okay, well, I love Top Gun. I will tell you, one of our former colleagues, Andrew Walker, tried to show this movie, Top Gun, to him.
1: Yeah, if I could pan Andrew Walker for all movie recommendations, I'll just go ahead and
2: do that on the UrLC podcast. Uh, just bad takes all around.
1: Bad takes. <laughs>
2: all right, Brent, what are you bringing to the table? All right, so this week I thought uh, I read this article in the the New York Times, and it just— it just hit me because I felt like it's a great read in the midst of the pandemic. So basically it starts off saying, hey, so we're all talking about the educational effects and rightfully so of of children maybe not being in school right now. Some of us might be talking about the uh, you know loss of social uh, growth for children. What we're not talking about is the Lack of Social Growth for Adults. And so the title of the piece is We're All Socially Awkward Now. So after, uh, you know, going through six months of this pandemic, it's saying that this is affecting us socially in ways that we don't even realize. Here's like a, a piece. We are subtly but inexorably losing our facility and agility in social situations, whether we are aware of it or not. The signs are everywhere. People oversharing on Zoom, overreacting or misconstruing one another's behavior, longing for, but then not really enjoying contact with others. That last part, I mean, it just, (laughs) I felt like it was writing about me. And so there's a lot of helpful, I think, data in there, but uh, it just reminded me that uh, who knows exactly what all we are losing touch with uh, as we remain. Kind of isolated or distanced uh, in in this this moment uh, throughout the well throughout the world in many cases.
0: Brent, I can already tell how awkward you've become during this time in quarantine. That's great.
2: You you want to you want to provide an example for our audience. See? <laughs> Well, Lindsay, that's
1: not only true of Brent. I know it's true of me. I have become increasingly awkward as I've just been living my life at home all the time. I'm spending all my time in my home office and not really seeing people. And sometimes it'll get to the end of the day and I'll realize that I haven't seen another person face to face in hours. That can, that can make for a lot of awkward things. Uh, there, there are great parts of it that I'm really not looking forward to giving up on. Like anytime I don't have an official meeting, I can wear a t-shirt. That's a great thing. Uh, and you know, we all know the Zoom wardrobe is people only see the top half of your body, so you can wear pajama pants if, if that's what you need to do to get through the day. Those are things I'm not looking forward to giving up necessarily, and it is understandable to me how many, many of us are finding ourselves increasingly awkward in this very strange time. Well, speaking of awkward, yeah, we'll just go ahead and transition (laughs) to the end of our show today. But if you could, if you could go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or review, it helps other people discover the show. And we are almost, at least in the uh, Apple podcast app, we are uh, almost at 100 uh, ratings. And so if you could help us get there, we would be really, really grateful. But... Just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes, and we hope that you will join us next week where we'll be back with more awkward conversation. And until then, uh, for Brent, Lindsay, and myself, we want to say goodbye and thanks for listening.